Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. This is it. The time has come. Saturday night's all right for fighting. Get in the ring and go the distance with Fight Night with Adam Catterall and Gareth A. Davies. You're better than that! On Talk Sport. Welcome to the Fight Night podcast. I'm Adam Catterall. Pleasure once again to be in your company. However, if it's, this is the first time you've been in our company, uh, then make sure you hit subscribe to the podcast. You can do it on iTunes and you can do it via the TalkSport website if you need an Android feed. We're there every single Monday morning. We're live on the radio every single Saturday night from 8 o'clock. Three hours of combat sport chat, bringing you closer to the fight game and also getting you closer to some of the superstars uh, that participate in, uh, in boxing and in MMA. Uh, we also talk to legends as well, and that's where we're going to start this week's podcast because every single week we get a retired fighter on to reminisce, to take us on a little bit of a trip down memory lane. And one man that has provided some sensational nights throughout his career, and he doesn't mind talking about them, is the Cobra himself. Carl Froch, he stepped up Saturday night for a chat with us. Horror! The Cobra! Is there anything this man can't do, eh? Become world champion in the boxing ring and maybe, maybe one day create a number one selling single. Maybe an album as well. Called I hope Cobra he's practising. <laughs> Welcome to the show, sir. How are you? <laughs> yeah, not too bad. Can't believe you dropped a bit of Johnny Cash on there. 
Yeah. <laughs> Listen, this, this this chat's about everything. You know what I mean? All different facets of your career, mate. We'll be bringing everything in here. Did you know, I'm, I'm sure you've been reminded a couple of times on social media today, it's 11 years to the day to that fantastic fight against Jermaine Taylor where you absolutely threw the kitchen sink at him in the last round to turn the fight on its head and, uh, and get the victory and retain your WBC World Championship. Yes, I certainly did. I did, um, I did a little um, post on my Instagram, Carl Cobra Froch, and um, reminded my fans. But um, it's amazing how fast the time goes. 11 years since that day. And it was only viewed by people the next day on ITV and they had to watch an yeah. advert between every round. I mean, that's, that's a tragedy, that is. What was what was the moment for you? Because that was a re- that was your first defence uh, against uh, Taylor. Obviously, you beat Pascal to become champion. That was the moment for me watching that fight that I became a proper Carl Froch fan. And obviously, we know what happened after that. You went on and had some fantastic fights with Durrell and obviously through the Super Six, and then obviously with how it all uh, finished with uh, with George Groves. But when was the moment for you, Carl, that you that you knew that you'd become? I don't, is fans favourite the right way? Where you become a star, if that makes sense, because you'd done the hard graft. I mean, you'd, you'd had a lot of fights up until that point. When was the moment that you knew that you'd become a, a British boxing star? I think it was when I entered the Super Six World Boxing Classic, which was a tournament that was put together by Callis Sowland, um, the Sowland brothers. Um, and they, they recently did the Super Series, um, which, which Callum Smith won, and George yeah. Groves and Chris Eubank Jr. were involved in. So I think when I entered that tournament... It was like my first seven-figure purse, and I thought to myself, right, I'm world champ now. I've defended against Jermaine Taylor, and now I'm in this tournament. And although British television wasn't really behind me, and I think the main, one of the main reasons was um, was just because it was 2008 when I won the world title and we had the big financial crash. Yeah. And um, ITV pulled out of boxing. BBC had already pulled out, and then ITV dropped out, and then Sky was kind of full with a couple of pay-per-view fighters at the time, and there was just no room at the end for the Cobra um, my promoter at the time couldn't seem to do a deal with um, with Sky, and um, obviously later on in my career I got I got I teamed up with Eddie Hearn and got back on Sky Sports. But to answer your question, I think it was when I signed in the Super Six World Boxing Classic, um, where Jermaine Taylor actually entered that as well, but he unfortunately mm-hmm. suffered a head injury with against Arthur Abraham. But it was then when I thought, you know what, I'm, I've kind of made it now. It's funny, you know, Carl, um, um, there's, there's certain signposts along your career. I had the absolute privilege of covering you, believe it or not, as an amateur as well. I don't know if you remember when you were fighting once at St. George's Hall, way back, you must have been in your early 20s. In and I remember being allowed to go into the back room where there were these big old radiators and you were pacing back and forth. It was probably round about 2000. And you were so nervous um, but I then, so nervous as hell back in them days. Exactly, nervous as hell. And, and but when you, when when you later on in your career, those twelve world f- title fights in a row, and I'd talk to mm. people like Manny Stewart about you, and he'd say, "The more I hope you're a fan of Dennis Andrews. That the more he said, the more he saw you, the more you reminded him of Dennis Andrews. Hard as a rock, f- fearless and relentless. For me." That night against Jean Pascal, even though I think it was five million people watched it on ITV and they pulled the plug, as you say, for me, that was the first time as a boxing correspondent 
that I thought this guy is special because you told us afterwards, you know, I went into this fight with broken ribs and perforated eardrums and I just thought he's just gone 12 rounds like two ancient warriors involved in pancreation at the ancient Olympics. That fight, that night, Carl, I, I, again, I, I had, I've had other nights when it's happened. I could literally not sleep for the next two nights because it was so thrilling. I don't know if it was for you that night. It was. I mean, that was the night when I, I got crowned the WBC world champion, um, December 2008. And that was when I kind of realised I belonged at world level uh, myself. Yeah. Because Pascal, although yeah. he'd, he'd not become a world champion, he, he then went on to become a world champion at light heavyweight, as we know. But he was an unbeaten prospect and he was also a top amateur. I think he, he beat our very own yeah. Paul Smith in the Commonwealth Games to become gold medalist as an amateur. So I knew he could fight. I knew he was good. And we was both fighting for the vacant title, which um, Joe Calzaghe vacated at the time. Yeah. Um, and when I, won, when I won the belt, I thought to myself, even though Pascal's not been a previous world champion, I belong at this level now. And a lot of people, so you, you can be forgiven for not knowing if I was good enough to be a world champion because I'd not shown anything particularly fantastic on the build-up to winning that world title except for toughness and heart and, and probably yeah. fitness as well. But and power, that, and power. And a bit of power as well, yeah. I'm not, I've never been a knockout, a one-punch knockout merchant. I mean, George Groves will probably argue differently, but I don't need people with one-punch. Here we go, here we go. <laughs> knock, them, <laughs> knock them spark out, but I don't. I, I'm a cumulative puncher, and I, I stop people on the feet, or, you know, I force the stop, I force the referee to jump in, unless I catch them mm. absolutely sweet, like I did with Grovesy Boy. But um, on that night, you saw that I, I was tough enough to take a shot. I was... I had the ability to mix it with someone who was a top amateur because Pascal won the gold in the Commonwealths. And mm, yeah. I was able to, you know, because it wasn't all one-sided that fight. I was taking as many punches as I was given, yeah. um, if, I, if I remember right. Oh, it was an old-fashioned war. Exactly. Yeah, and um, yeah. that was another one that was kind of missed. I mean, I know it was live on ITV and there's quite a few million people watching it, but I don't know that the terrestrial television fan is a bit of an armchair fan um, at the time. And I don't know, you just don't seem to get that um, recognition when you when you're fighting on on the terrestrial television channels, unless you're continuously fighting, like Audley Harrison early on in his career when he absolutely yeah. ruined it for us on BBC. Um, <laughs> he was boxing consecutively on BBC, and everybody got to see how awful he was. And then the BBC pulled out on it. I only had that one fight on on ITV, and then the next time I appeared on ITV was the Jermaine Taylor fight, which was shown yeah. delayed the next day, which was which was tragic, as I said earlier. But um, no, the Pascal win was for me as well a standout performance and a, a, mm. a, a performance mm. where I thought I'm world champion now. But it wasn't until I beat Jermaine Taylor and then signed the Super Six contract, which Mikel Kessler was also involved in, where I mm. thought I kind of belong here now. I'm starting to believe in myself. I've always been really, really nervous. I just saw at the St George's Hall in, in Liverpool for the for the um, I think it was Olympic qualifiers for there. Um, but yeah, Rob McCracken sort of drummed the, the nervous attention out of me and made me turn it into harness it and use it in, for my advantage mm. rather than my disadvantage. Mm. Well, you just mentioned Mikael Kessler's name there. And I, I, Carl said this is a compliment. I love listening to your podcast, right? Because there's a lot of stuff in there about the psychology of a fighter, what they go through as they're building up to an event, weigh-ins and various things like that, the diary that you keep. It's a fantastic listen. I encourage any of our listeners to go and have a little bit of a listen to Carl's What's the uh, podcast, podcast called? Frotch on Fighting. That's the one. That's the one, mate. That's the one. Make sure you go and check it out, yes. But the, I wanted to ask you and, you and to elaborate on 
dealing with defeat, because the first time that you met Kessler, obviously you, you, you fought him again and beat him, but the first time you beat him, obviously it didn't go your way. So talk to me about the psychology of dealing with that first defeat. Well, when I first lost, I can remember quite vividly sitting in the, um, sitting in the um, hotel after, and Mick, Mick Hennessy, my promoter at the time, was there chatting away with, with somebody and having a bit of a laugh and a joke. And I thought, how can he be laughing and, and sort of not being too concerned about me losing. I think he was kind of over it pretty quick. I was absolutely devastated. I lost my title. My mm-hmm. brother was wound up, and he ended up grabbing a handful of peanuts out of the, out of the, um, <laughs> of the peanut bowl on the table and throwing them at the back of McKennis' head. <laughs> As, you do. Sh- As you do. As you do. Shut up. <laughs> but my older brother, Lee, was a bit of a, he was a, bit of a drinker at the time. He's, he's now six years in He's sobriety. a top lad. He's doing really top well. Mm. But, um, yeah, um, I was devastated, but what kept, me, what kept me going was the fact that I was in the Super 6 World Boxing Classic tournament, and mm. I knew that in my next fight, I've still got a chance to get a couple of points, you know, two points for a win, and I think you yeah. get a point for a draw, and no points if you lose. And I thought, if I win my next fight, I've still got a chance of getting through to the semi-final. So, although I'd lost my world title, I knew I was fighting Arthur Abraham next, um, mm. and I got a chance to still keep myself going in this tournament I had to win the next fight and it just so happened that Mikel Kessler was injured quite badly in the fight where he beat me so he pulled out of the tournament so in my very next fight it didn't take long to to transpire that I was actually going to be fighting for my old WBC world title again in the very next fight so as devastated as I was and and I cried some tears that night and I was upset and I give my me and my mum had a cut I always go to my mum when I'm upset and when I found out I'd, I'd ruptured my cruciate ligament in my right knee. Me and my mum had a, a good cry together and I got through the operation and we got through that. But, yeah, losing losing for the first time was horrible. I never thought I'd lose as a professional. Um, once I became world champion, I thought, that's it, I've made it and I'll, I'll keep going now until I retire undefeated. Um, but, yeah, fought Arthur Abraham in my very next fight, won the WBC belt back and that was it, back to, back to business and back um, world champion again. Mm. I tell you what, Stick if around. I can just interrupt before we go to break, yeah. Ed... It was minus 10 in Helsinki, I remember, Carl. <laughs> you remember? It was freezing. Do you remember? That's and I got in, nearly got into that. a fight with a, with a drunk Finn. And luckily, um, Robert <laughs> Hellenius came, was standing behind me in the bar and suddenly came in, all six foot ten of him. That performance that night, by the way, against Arthur Abraham, and I've, I've said it to you before privately, for me, that was one of your finest performances in, in a game plan. Because you jabbed his head off that night and he just did not know what to do. Yeah, I jabbed his head off and, and I beat him up as well because I, I was kind of, I was so wound up and so motivated because I lost to Kessler and it was actually the same promotional team, Calais Island, who mm. jumped in the ring like a raving lunatic when he knows his opponent's won. Um, he, he seems to know the, the result before, before anybody else does, especially when it's in Germany. I'm uh, not accusing anybody of anything, but um, if, if, if it's very, very close, you've got no chance of winning. And um, mm-hmm. I'm not saying I beat Mikel Kessler that night, I lost, but I knew it was very close. But it just so happened that um, I think it was Roger Tillerman was one of those judges. So I had absolutely no chance. So when I beat, when I beat Arthur Abraham in my very next fight and um, Callis Allen was in the ring, um, it was very satisfying, to say the least, that I won my belt back and beat one of his boys um, from his own promotional team.
Hey, you listen to Fight Night on Talk Sport. Carl Froch is with us, looking back at his sensational career, listening to that music there. Better what's the story? Always reminds me of you walking out at Wembley. We'll get to that fight in a moment or so. Um, let's get back to uh, that, that Super Six, shall we? Uh, because obviously the fight with Andre Ward was in there. Now the dust has settled on it and you've called time on your career. How do you look back on that particular fight uh, with Andre? Andre Ward? Yeah. I look back on that fight with um, great disappointment and annoyance because um, although I got beat by a, by a guy that's never been beat, um, still, it was it was um, a disjointed, awkward performance by myself. I was very under-motivated mentally because um, I'd already been to Broadwalk Empire in, um, in New Jersey, um, Atlantic City, sorry, um, once before when I fought Glenkov Johnson, and I was just so so mm. bored with the training camp in, in uh, Manhattan again. It felt like Groundhog Day, and I was so under-motivated. It was coming up towards Christmas. And, um, I mean, I don't want people to think, oh, I'm making excuses. I got beat by the better man on the night, and Andre Ward actually is quite a, quite a talented fighter. I don't know if you've ever seen him fight, but he's very good. <laughs> he, he won an Olympic gold medal. He's unbeaten as a professional. And I lost by 115-113 on two of the judges' scorecards. And as much as people think that that was ridiculous... The judges watched the fight ringside and they scored it and it was one round off being a draw. So it was very mm. close. Nobody's ever come that close to beating him. But um, I was wound up. I underperformed. Oh, did I underperform or could I just not hit him because he was so awkward and quite slick and fast? And, you know, he didn't really want to fight Ward. When he's close, he holds and uses his head. When he's out of range, he's out of range and he's very quick with his jab. So he's just, he's just a difficult man to beat. Um, and usually when I've had a boxing match or fight, my hands are hurting and my knuckles are swelled up and I've got lumps and bruises all over my head and my face and my nose usually mm. breaks. But after that fight, I was just like, no hands were hurting, no no bumps and bruises on my head. My nose always swells up. You've only got to think about punching me and my nose swell, used to swell up. But um, yeah, I didn't feel like I'd been in a fight, so I felt like I'd been pickpocketed and lost my world title. But to be honest, <clears> I was glad that the tournament, the Super 6 World Boxing Classic, was over. And I could now come back to British soil and start doing things again. It's interesting, you know, Carl, because I was at both those fights with you, uh, Glenn Johnson, Andre Ward. And I was laughing last night because there was Frotch Friday on um, on Sky Sports last night. And uh, yeah, that's right. I, after you've beaten Glenn Johnson, Eddie Hearn comes up behind you, behind you and tries to pick you up. And he really struggles to lift you up. I don't know if you recall it. It's very, yeah. very funny. Um, but what... <laughs> That 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 ennui that you were feeling, going back to to Atlantic City, I mean now when we look back on tournaments, boxers always say, "Oh, I love it because I know who I'm facing next and I know when it is." It's strange that you felt that at the time, you know? Yeah, well, I was in um, I was in New York in Manhattan, training for the Glencoff <clears throat> Johnson fight, and it was it was red hot, and I was staying in an mm. apartment. You couldn't swing a cat in there. It cost me ten grand a bloody week. But he still, he still wasn't very big. There was me, McCracken, and my, my Rob McCracken, and my my younger brother Wayne. Mm. And it was just flagging yellow cabs every day to get to and from the gym. Went to Gleason's gym, went to Trinity, and I was sparring that kid Chocolate, Peter Quillen, and a couple yeah, of other yeah. guys trying to take my head off. And and literally that was June or July. I think it was June the Johnson fight. And when it I went was... back um, in uh, November for the Ward fight, it was all same old, same old. Been here, seen it, done it. And obviously, at the end of it, I'm fighting Andre Ward. So I'm thinking to myself, this is going to be a horrible, awkward night's work. It's going to be really difficult to beat him. And I was literally bored. The tournament had dragged on for two years. And I just, I don't know, it was my own fault. It was unprofessional. I had a real bad attitude. 
I had an argument with my brother in the changing rooms, my, my older brother Lee, um, because he was drunk and being a, a bit of a nutcase against um, Virgil Hunter, Andre Ward's trainer. He came in to watch the hands get wrapped, and he was being a bit, mm. he was being a bit cheeky, saying stuff to me. And my brother got the ump and threatened to kill him. And um, I, had to, I had to have a tell Lee to shut up and stay, you know, stay, stay in his cage and behave yourself. So I'd had a bit of an argument with Lee and told him, and it was just horrible. And I got in the ring, and um, I don't know, I just didn't feel good and didn't feel right. But obviously, the reason I lost is because Andre Ward was very, very good, and I just wasn't good enough. Let's let's just be totally honest about it. But I just feel that if I'd have been motivated and had the energy in me and the, the enthusiasm that I had when I boxed Lucian Butte in my very next fight. Yeah. I think I could yeah. have given Andre Ward a harder night's work and, I don't know, maybe maybe beat him. But, like I said, I'm not going to sit here and say that I could beat Andre Ward because he's a, he's a, he's a decent fighter in his. Um, it, it doesn't pain good. me to say either because the mm. reason... The reason I don't like giving him loads of credit is because he's horrible to watch. Nobody wants to watch him fight. He boxed Kovalev twice in what should have been the biggest and most exciting fight in the heavyweight division for years. And nobody tuned in for the rematch because the first one was so boring. And then when he won the rematch, he won with three low blows on the spin and and stopped an older Kovalev in a boring fight. And I spoke to Ken Hirschman at HBO and he said, we can't show him anymore because nobody tunes in to watch him fight. 150,000 pay-per-views. on what's supposed to be the mm. biggest fight in history. I'm just giving Andre Ward stick now, aren't I? <laughs> <laughs> I was going to ask you about the beauty fight, because how much pressure did you feel going into that, coming off the back of that loss? Did, did you feel much at all? Because the performance was sensational. Nobody had ever done that to Lucien Beauté. Yeah, there was, he, there was he, a lot of pressure, he, and there was, a lot of, um, there was a lot of stake for me. But I thought, I've, I've kind of secured myself financially as, as much as I'd need to be secured um, in the Super Six. <laughs> I was coming back to England, motivated, wound up from losing to Ward. I've got Eddie Hearn now, now promoting me. And it was at my hometown in Nottingham. I've never been beat, never been beat in Nottingham, um, on the cobbles or in the ring. And um, <laughs> it's like, I just, I just got in there. And Sugar Ray Leonard came into my changing rooms before the fight and had a little chat with me. And I thought, Sugar Ray Leonard's coming to watch me fight. Sugar Ray Leonard. Bloody hell, this is mad. And um, mm-hmm. even though I was world champ previously and I was... I was um, I was obviously a name in boxing. Sugar Ray Leonard walks in. I just thought, yeah. I can't believe this. That, that he's actually here to watch this fight, and he's backing me, and he told me I can win. And I don't know. I was like a man possessed. Came out to that ring entrance, the Rocky one, no easy way out. And I had all my fans here, all my schoolmates, my, all my family. And when I did the ring walk, I was walking to the ring absolutely charged on fire, and I was prepared to walk through walls and just just take anything what Butte had to give. So I just feel that if anybody was in front of me that night, I couldn't have been any more um, G'd up and, and up for the fight than I was. And um, I think the performance from round one showed yeah. that because I, I actually watched it back the other week when it was on, on Sky Sports again. And I think it was a Frotch Friday, Gareth was talking about earlier, they showed the Butte mm-hmm. fight. And I actually got hit with quite a lot of counter left-hand punches because he's southpaw. I walked through quite a lot of shots, but... That's exactly what I did. I walked through them because I just I was indestructible that night. I just felt so good. Now, those last five fights of yours, Carl, I mean, Lucien Bouté, Yusuf Mack, Mikkel Kessler and the two George Groves fights. I remember you telling us distinctly, if I don't beat Lucien Bouté, this is the end of my career. You were genuinely contemplating 
walking away and that was May 2012 and of course mm. you had four fights after that that were enormous I mean maybe not the Yusuf Mack as enormous but again it was in Nottingham it was your last fight in Nottingham and then that that, tri that trio of brilliant fights um, with with Mikkel Kessler and then the two George Groves fights by the way I checked some um, on the official Wembley Stadium numbers a couple of days ago knowing you were coming oh here we go here we you go know, watch out Carl now you know it was 78,000, not 80. No, you? you can't do that. You can't do that to him. No, I don't believe a word of it. It was 2,000. Um, give me a... Work your maths out, Gareth. <laughs> Listen, Carl, you must... You, the way that the, of the, you call time on your career, the shot itself, the night... I mean, look at what has happened since. That People kind of forget that was the catalyst to what we're experiencing now. How many times have we been back to Wembley now with Anthony Joshua and Cardiff exactly. and all these fantastic stadiums? It kicked off that night. Your night with did, George, yeah. I think, that was the I night. Think Eddie Hearn realised that that was the catalyst for, for Wembley and, and, and moving yeah. forward, how big boxing could be. Um, but, you know, there was myself and George Groves involved in the first fight in Manchester, which, which captured the public's imagination because of the mm. way it was stopped. And then, obviously... It went to Wembley, and Eddie Hearn did the promote, and it was his idea, so he did a fantastic job. But it was, that night was the catalyst for pay-per-view mm. back on Sky. I mean, the, the, the Mikel Kessler rematch actually was a pay-per-view back on Sky after it had been yeah. so miserably let down by, I think it was, um, was it David Hay, Audley Harrison fight? Mm. Um, it yeah. was one yeah, of them, was the last one on pay-per-view. Um, yeah. But then that brought it back, and then look where it's gone. I mean, Anthony Joshua, what, a, what an amazing advocate for... For his sport, I mean, the heavyweight division always gets the attention. But his fight with um, Vladimir Klitschko, I mean, I yeah. sat ringside and commentated on that for Sky Sports, and I was looking around, actually thinking, have I actually boxed here and this with this crowd? And on the fight night when I boxed Groves, I kind of didn't take it in because I was, yeah, I was so switched on and kind of I felt hypnotised. I'd done that much work with a guy called Chris Marshall from the England mm. in, in, Institute of Sport, and um, he's a psychologist. And I was just so one-trap mind and tunnel visioned and on, on a seek-and-destroy mission that I didn't take anything. I could have been walking out into in front of 3,000 people, not 80,000. Mm. Um, and I just wouldn't have, I wouldn't have noticed. I, I did my ring walk and paid no attention to the crowd or the occasion. I just had one thing on my mind, and that was, that was render George Groves unconscious. And, and I oh. think that mindset works for me because it's worked for me so many times previously. On those two fights with George Groves, Cole, um, obviously they were at numbers 11 and 12 in a row in world title fights. And by then, we were really celebrating that you were a very special fighter, a very special character. When he got you down early in that first fight, you know, you had this thing you did. You flared your nostrils, you, you, you sucked up the air and you came back at him. Talk us through that, that, that first fight where... Where he did hit you hard early on. Well, that first fight when he hit me with that right hand in round one, um, yeah, I didn't, I didn't see the punch coming, but I certainly felt it. And I was down on the seat of my pants for the second time in my career. First time was mm. by Jermaine Taylor in round three of my first world title defence. Um, and to be honest, I kind of deserved it because I was training, I was, I was dancing with my, my, my now wife, Rachel, um, on a dance show called Stepping Out on ITV for, for the first five That's weeks right. of the 12-week training camp, yeah. doing a reality TV show. And yeah. I was, I I was kind that, of yeah. just taking it, I wasn't taking it seriously, to be honest. Mm. And mm. I got in the ring on fight night, cold, the, the changing rooms were freezing, I, I didn't warm up, McCracken kept trying to kick me up the arse and get me going. 
and I just I just wasn't up for it this fight. I just I, d- I thought that George Groves was going to be an easy win, if I'm honest. So I didn't train properly. I didn't take the sparring seriously, and uh, like I say, I was doing that dance show for for four or five weeks of of a twelve week camp. So I only had mm. a proper seven weeks in the gym, and I was driving home from Sheffield every night instead of she- staying in Sheffield. So I was kind of at the end of my career. I, I beat Mikel Kessler in a rematch. I just I'd done the Super Six. I beat Butte, beat Kessler, and I was like. I was kind of ready for retiring, and Eddie Hearn put George Groves in front of me, and I just thought, this is a load of rubbish. I want to fight Chavez Jr. I want to go to Vegas. I want to, I want to go yeah. out with a blaze of glory. So there was no motivation at all to fight to fight um, Grovesy boy from Shepherd's Bush, who, who I'd sparred with previously and, and found him really, really easy to hit. Um, but come fight night in Manchester, it was it was a very, very rude awakening in round one when he punched me in the face like he said he was going to, the cheeky, cheeky sod. And hit me with a right hand and put me down for only second time in my career. I was down. I wasn't out, but I felt it. My legs did a funny dance when I stood up, which I don't usually do. Mm. And um, Howard Foster thought to himself, right, can he carry on? And I could carry on because I did carry on right mm. up until the point when I stopped him. It makes it sweeter as well because George actually goes on from that to become world champion. So it just shows the level of opponent that you were dealing with that night. Did you enjoy the stuff outside the ring with him? Did you enjoy the back and forth? Um, well, I can't say I did. In the first fight, I was I was really, really wound up. I thought he was a cheeky swine. And um, <laughs> I, I wanted to fill him in um, and hit him as hard as I could, which is, which is where, where the mistake was because I was opening up. I was, I was telegraphing my punches trying to, hit him on the chin as hard as I could in the first fight. So when I was underprepared, not fully trained up well, and I was trying to knock him out. You can't try and knock your opponent out. It doesn't work in boxing. It's called boxing mm. for a reason. It's not called fighting, um, as Rob McCracken used to always always remind me. It's the art of pugilism, and you have to hit and use your jab and set up set up punches and set traps, and, you know, it's technical. Yep. It's not... If if boxing was easier, every, every pub man would be doing it and having a swing on every Friday, Saturday night fight would be in the yep. ring, but... It's not. It's a difficult sport. You've got to do it from when you're a kid or, or you, you, you're going to struggle to win a world title. Not many start late. I mean, I know Hopkins started late and, and some, some do slip through the net and start late and still do well, but it's very unheard of. But, um, mm. yeah, I was... Um, I, I just got a bit of a pasting, didn't I, off Groves in the first fight. Um, Carl, um, the name Calzaghi's popped up. Just a couple of little things. Calzaghi's popped up on your lips for fight 36 that you haven't had yet uh, in the last few days, and also last week, which got me salivating. People uh, asked, what do you think about Frotcher is best against Canelo at his best? Um, yeah. Can you give me an answer on those two uh, those two? It's poses? difficult, isn't it, to say what, what would have happened in this fight? Because you, when you talk at world-level fights, when you talk about top, top-level fighters, and uh, I am talking about myself as a top-level fighter, by the way, as well, without being big-headed, I won, I won four world titles. Won the WBC twice, WBA and the IBF. Um, <laughs> totally entitled to. Totally so, you keep going. I love entitled it. to. You can You're fight. a modern great, Carl. You are a modern great. There is no question Thank you. about it. I, I'll say that to you, even though you picked Kawasaki to beat me. I'll, I'll let that one slide. Well, I, I, he wins on points. That's, you, uh, listen... I've ju- I've, I'm only just... Ca- listen, I could be completely Don't wrong and you say Don't to worry. me... Don't worry. There Don't you worry. go, mate. I told you <laughs> you're wrong. Next time I see you, I'm going to... Um, no, I'm not actually, because you might, you might kick me in the head. <laughs> I will never I kick you in the head. <laughs> but I just think that... The, I think if you... What I was getting at was, if you, if you talk about two top-level fighters fighting, then 
you can't say there's one outright winner every time because it's down to the night, it's down to the motivation, mm. it's down to the training mm. camp. And, you know, when two people fight, I could have boxed Lucian Butte five times and maybe I would have won three out of the five. But on that particular mm. night in Nottingham, when I was so motivated after losing to Andre Ward, Butte got the best of me and I absolutely smashed him to bits, as you saw. Mm. Um, but that could have been another fight in another place on a different time. And I could have opted to try and box and move and take my time with him and get into the fight slowly, like I used to start mm. fights slow, and yeah. then lose on points. So if I'd have boxed Canelo Alvarez, you know, I, I don't think I can, can be knocked out, but you never know, he might have knocked me out. But I might have outboxed him. I think, I was, I think I'm too big for him, but he's gone up to, he's gone up to light heavyweight since and, and had a couple of fights. I know he's coming back mm. down now, but I just think height and reach is a big advantage in boxing, and I had that over, over Triple G, and I've, I've had it over Canelo Alvarez as well. Um, I think Calzaghe would have been a tough fight. I think he could have beat me on points, um, quite comfortably on points, if he managed to not get knocked out. But as i said many times, I think I'd have knocked him out because I think I'd have been too much for him. Let's not forget what Robin Reed did to him, split decision. And then, you know, I thought he won. I thought he won the fight. Hopkins was very, very close to beating him. I mean, that could, fight could have gone either way. Um, the, the old Roy Jones Jr. was well finished, you know, came close, took him the distance. So although although you can, if you're a Joe Calzaghe fan, you might as well call him Super Joe, and he was unbeaten in 46 fights, which is which is fair enough. But we can all be beaten, and he came very close a couple of times to losing. Mm. Um, and he's been dropped a few times as well. I mean, he was dropped by a guy called Cabre Salim, an Egyptian guy that I was training with in in New York, and he told me that that Calzaghe doesn't punch hard; it's no problem, and. Um, if somebody doesn't punch hard against me, I close the distance and then I try and land that big uppercut and try and land that big right hand, obviously. You, we'll never, never know, will we? But I'd mm. back myself to beat Joe Cowsey. I'd have backed myself to beat Canelo. But um, we'll never hey, know. Hey, Cole, Cole, hang on a minute. I've not beaten in my whole career, let's not forget. There's only one guy I've not beaten, because I beat yeah. Mikel Kester in the rematch. The only guy I've not beaten is Andre Ward. And nobody's beaten him. Um, so... I didn't have a bad career, did I? No, you didn't, mate. You had a good one. Amazing um, career. Is there just... I know that obviously we've been chatting about the Calzaghe thing there. And, you know, obviously you've done well financially. You're having a great career now in the media and doing your thing. And you, you seem extremely happy. But is there one that would make them itch, them knuckles itch at once more time? Is, is there any chance whatsoever that if something came along that you'd do it again? Well, I said it a couple of weeks ago, and I don't want my fans to think that I was lying when I said that I'd fight Kawasaki if he was to come out of retirement, because it'd be ridiculous for me to try and think that I could compete now with with anybody who's who's currently around and who's active, um, a, Billy, a Billy Joe Saunders or a Callum Smith or or anybody even at light heavyweight like a, like a Bivol or someone um, mm. or anybody coming up because they're all fit and strong and seasoned. But if somebody was going to come out of retirement like I was, like like Mikel Kessler, because we're one-one, we could have a we could have a decider, or Joe Calzaghe, who's I believe is 48 and um, is, is not in the best of shape, is he? I mean, uh, uh, most people aren't at 48. But if it was the right person, then I'd have a serious look at it. But when I think about waking up in the morning, going on a run, and then putting my head guard on and bandaging up and sparring and that, uh, the reality of it would probably it'd probably last about a week or two then I'd say what Cole, doing? you'd be what? better off Cole on Celebrity SAS with Tony Bellew right now yes get him on that get him why on aren't that. you on it for goodness sake I wanted to see you on it I um I was actually Did... asked to go on it but I didn't fancy it mate to be honest really 
Yeah, I didn't fancy the interrogation at the end with them, them headphones on with the playing barking dogs and screaming babies at you. I just, I just think that I'd have just gone. Do I don't need this. Just, but I might look just, at it in the future, but yeah. I let Tony, let Tony Bellio have a go. He did really well. At, well, I don't know how he did, actually. He's only on week, week two. I don't want no spoiler alerts, but he... He's he's a kind of character that's it's good to watch. Did you see him lose lose his temper last week when it was? Yeah. Oh, it's terrible, yeah, did, terrible. Yeah. <laughs> but he banged great. his knee on a rock. He, he yeah, couldn't do the press ups. He's but yeah, I tell you what, then, didn't he? <laughs> he, he, I, I love the way that he um, he he's he's been kind to everyone in the group and and you know he's got to be a physical leader there because he ought to be. But I'm not sure Joey Essex is stronger than Tony Bellew in the lineup. <laughs> I didn't get that at all, frankly. No, I don't know. I don't know. He fancied himself, probably. I did a bit of boxing. A friend of mine. <laughs> Listen, Carl, thank you so much for your time this evening, mate. It's been a pleasure to go through all that sensational career, and thank you very much for all those great nights that you gave us down the yeah, years. Yeah, no mate. problem. Thank, thanks for having me on. I always, always enjoy talking about myself, as you know. <laughs> <laughs> Following the nostalgia, time to get to the present day. Gareth caught up with the president of the World Boxing Council, Maurizio Sullivan. Lots going on there. Franchise champions, mandatory challenges, who's got this belt, who's got that belt. Over to those two boys to duke it out. Can I just ask you about your interviews with, with Mike Tyson? Because he was extraordinary with you. Um, you, you, you. You clearly share a bond with him. Um, and he was very open, very, um, very fascinating um, in, in that one-to-one with you. Well, uh, Mike is, is a very special person in, in our lives. We have been friends, uh, genuine friends for many years uh, through boxing. My father was very close to him and he was in Mexico several times. He was in our house several times. And uh, we, we just like each other. We, we, I, I'm not a journalist, so the way we conduct these WBC talks might be different from a formal interview. So he was very relaxed. He really enjoyed the pictures that I, I put in the screen uh, from so many different uh, times. Uh, he he was fascinated. That event was 1988. Uh, so that is 32 years ago. It's unbelievable, yeah. And, and yeah. him to see the images of something that was very special at that time because uh, it was so funny. He, he was the WBC World Heavyweight Champion, the, the baddest man on earth at that time. And my father put him in this bull ring, small bull ring, and when he saw a very small cow come out, I mean, <laughs> he just jumped out and it was so funny. <laughs> he had a blast. Uh, that day was very, very emotional, very funny. And I love Mike Tyson. He's a, a true, uh, genuine, good person. He was the victim of uh, the circumstances for many years. But now to see him in a very uh, ease, happy place in his life, it's very uh, 
very, very good for, for everyone. It's incredible. Um, um, not having had you on the show before, one of the big questions that people always debate at the moment is the franchise champions. Um, I, you and I have sat over dinner and I've asked you a lot of questions about it before. Um, to someone listening now who doesn't really understand why you created it, can you explain in a, in a, in a kind of um, abridged version of, of what your thinking was behind having franchise champions? Yeah, this is uh, years of uh, opinions and uh, facts put, put together. This is a new concept. And as anything new in life creates confusion and creates resistance. Uh, the WBC created the franchise champion designation, which is limited to very few fighters. Uh, right now, Canelo and Lomachenko. That's have, it. Yeah. That's yeah. it. They have specific yeah. characteristics. Number one, they fight in different categories. Uh, but most importantly, they are regarded as the best in the world. Uh, the franchise champion is one who drives the, the boxing community in all senses. So Canelo, uh, with this designation, uh, has the opportunity to represent the WBC, and he has the opportunity to fight in any weight category against other champions of other organizations, the fights that the people want to see, and it's just a flexible way of opening up the opportunities for all of us to see the fights that really matter. Uh, I understand the critics. I understand the confusion. I just ask for people to give it time and prove uh, what we are sure is a great concept uh, with great benefits. So, so at the moment, <laughs> what, what, I understand that, but at the moment, what... Um... Again, people are finding hard to understand is we, we had this situation with Devin Haney, yeah, yes. where he um, um, he was reinstated as world champion, um, and even though he'd never won the belt in the ring, I mean, I think this is from a British perspective, because Justin Fortuna and um, before the lockdown, Justin Fortuna and Luke Campbell were due to fight for the belt. So let, let, um, let me clarify a little bit yeah. uh, and going a little bit backwards because you have to judge the whole picture, not just pieces of it. Mikey Garcia was a champion. Mm. He was inactive because he fought in welterweight with the WBC permission. He was going to do the mandatory defense against Campbell. Uh, at the moment where he uh, announces that he's not fighting in lightweight, the WBC ordered a series of events. So uh, we ended up with some of those fights falling apart. At the end, the WBC received a request from Lomachenko, who is a champion of other organizations. He says, I want to fight for the WBC belt. And we like to give the fans and we like to give boxing what is best. So the WBC accepted and we put Luke Campbell, who was a mandatory contender, against Lomachenko for the title. We had ordered uh, Devon Haney against Abdullah Jeff, who had been waiting also 
for that process, they had been accepting to participate in that uh, process. Um, so that fight was ordered for the interim title and then the winners to meet. Uh, Lomachenko defeats uh, Campbell and Haney defeats Abdulayev. And at the WBC convention, uh, Lomachenko was awarded the designation of uh, franchise champion. When that happens, and I'm going to give you a couple of examples of how it happened before. When that happens, the Haney, it is not fair to say he didn't win the title in the ring. He defeated Abdulayev, became interim, and then it's a simple movement when there's no, uh, sim simply he's just uh, upgraded to say it in a way. Uh, Razor Rodok fought Lennox Lewis in 90s and uh, Bo fought Holyfield with a signed commitment that the winner had to fight against the winner of uh, Lennox and Rurok. Uh, Lennox knocked out Rurok spectacularly and then Bo beats Holyfield and chooses not to fight Lennox Lewis and throws the belt into the trash can. Lennox Lewis was named champion of the world because of the process. And then Lennox Lewis defended the title against uh, Tony Tucker. So there is precedent. We deal at every single uh, topic at the time. So Haney did win the title in the ring. He then defended it in November and got injured. That's why he was put in a champion in recess designation because it was uncertain when he was going to return to the ring. Mm. That's when the WC ordered Campbell and Fortuna to fight for the title, waiting to see what would be Haney's uh, situation. It's complex, isn't it? As you've just kind of laid out for us, you know? Um, and and what, one of the other things while you're on um, is Gary Russell Jr., for example, only seems to fight once a year. Um, is he within the remits and the mandates in what he's doing all the time? Or would you prefer to see him more active? No, he definitely should be more active. Uh, mm. There have been a few situations, particular situations, which have uh, kept his activity due to medical or contractual uh, matters. But uh, a fighter is committed to defend every six months and is committed to defend once a year the mandatory. Uh, there have been, we have addressed that every single time with him. The fact is he started being active at the beginning of his reigning as a champion. And then the last two years were very uh, slow. And it, it, it is a problem that we are addressing. We have addressed it. He had his last fight was a mandatory, which he won. But now this thing has put everything on hold. But Gary Russell is certainly uh, an issue in the featherweight division that we are addressing. And finally, on, on the heavyweights, with Deontay as champion, and obviously Tyson uh, winning the belts from him, as well as there being a rematch clause, and that they didn't fight for, um, what is it, 15 months in between. How is the mandatory working at heavyweight at the moment? 
Uh, Dillian White defeated Rivas, uh, winning the interim championship and the mandatory position. And there was an issue uh, that we are all aware with UCAT, which put everything on hold, unfortunately, for around six months. Uh, at the convention, with everybody present, the WBC accepted the Fury challenge of Wilder as, as a mandatory title defense. And we specifically pointed out that if uh, Dillian White was uh, released from that uh, doping problem, uh, then he would be confirmed as mandatory contender for February 2021st, which is the date after the Tyson Fury Wilder fight. But the talk now, of course, is so many people in the world because of the lockdown. If Deontay can't fight um, Tyson Fury, Anthony Joshua saying it from his own quarantine, Tyson Fury saying it from his own quarantine, would an undisputed title fight just trump everything? I don't want to speculate. We are all right. in lockdown. Yeah. We all get crazy ideas. We want things to happen. <laughs> and uh, everything is a possibility. But uh, there's many other things that have to happen first, which is the world getting back to action. So, uh, of course, it's a possibility. And uh, uh, there are so many fights in the heavyweight division that can be made of great interest. If you look at the whole roster, you have uh, Tyson Fury, you have Joshua, you have Wilder, Dillian White, you have Andy Reese, uh, you have uh, Povetkin, you have the upcoming uh, Joy Joyce and Agba, and uh, just, uh, I don't remember having the heavyweight division as talented and as interesting in the last 20 years. Now, what the world champions do during lockdown, just to keep their mind active, well, I'll tell you what they're going to do. They go and work at their fiance's supermarket. That is, of course, if your name's Terry Harper. We caught up with her at the weekend, mid-stacking shelves. Terry Harper, how are you? Are you well? Yeah, I'm good, thank you. How are We're all right. Yeah. We're all right. We're Very good. Over. Listen, I've, I've been informed, uh, Terry, that you're, uh, you're putting a shift in as well. I know that, obviously, you're... You're keeping yourself fit. You're ticking over and getting yourself uh, ready for, for getting back out there and defending world championships. Uh, however, I believe that you're uh, in the local supermarket at the moment. Yeah, I've just done a, a steady eight-hour shift. Um, well, it is my partner, Jenna. She's the store manager for a co-op. And last couple of weeks, it's just been hectic for us. So um, we're isolated together. So I just thought um, I'd come and gear an hand instead of me just being at home, dwelling on uh, the fact that we fight got cancelled. Do you know something? That is, it's a tough, listen, it seems a dead obvious thing to do, doesn't it? But you know what I mean? The, the mundane thing of being in the house constantly all the time, twiddling your thumbs and what have you, you drive yourself uh, insane. So to get out and actually do some positive for the local community and obviously help your lass out as well, that's yeah. top class. You know what I mean? So uh, what, uh, what graft has she got you doing, mate? Is it, are you, are you on the uh, uh, fruit and veg? Are you, on, uh, are you on the frozen aisle? Where are you? A bit of everything. I've just been, I've just been doing some uh, reductions, but ready for tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're closing shortly, so I'm ready for me there. I, I keep telling them it's a lot, it's a lot easier boxing than, than this game. 
Mate, I'm telling you, right, supermarket work is proper graft. I used to, when I, I went at college, I used to have a, a gig at the weekends at Tesco, right? It's proper <laughs> hard. Honestly, it is. It's a proper shift. <laughs> oh. It is. Sorry, back well, us up, mate. It is, isn't it? It's a proper hard yeah, gig. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, I used to come on at dinner all the time before I to sleep soon she gets in, but no, I'll let her off. <laughs> Listen, can I just check with you first of all? How are there toilet rolls and antibacterial wipes in the co-op at the moment <laughs> yeah, or not? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's it's stocked up, so get it into the co-op if you're running short. Uh, yeah, well, um, <laughs> listen, um, I, 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 I surely the. Um, Stacking the shelves, doing the stuff, is uh, uh, being uh, being bossed over by uh, your lovely fiance Jenna Hayden. Um, yeah. I'm sure she'll be pulling you back to the shelves in a minute. Actually, we better make the most of you. Um, um, surely, surely the hill runs that Steffi Bull has been putting you through are harder than the shifts in the supermarket. I have seen you sprinting up some hills in Donny this week. It's unbelievable. Yeah. Um... I had done them for a good a good few weeks uh, before lockdown had started, so um, it was a nice quick reminder um, to to show me how far I am actually off of being fighting fit. Because I thought I was doing alright. I've been doing the ten k runs, um, training twice a day apart from weekends, uh, so I thought I was doing well. But obviously, I was just ticking over. So that was a nice wake up call to uh, start getting back back on track and getting some solid sessions in. I've been um, watching yours. I mean, I'm a follower of yours. I'm I'm a I'm a professional fan of yours, as you know. Um, that um, you have been having a bit of a to do with uh, Michaela Mayer on uh, on Twitter in the last kind of week or so. And tell us about that. Yeah. And also, you've been doing these videos of you know people, and it really annoys me. People um, on Twitter having a go at you saying she looks like a man, but you can rock a little red number. <laughs> um, to explain, which, please discuss. Which one am I starting with? Uh, Michaela or the red dress? Michaela, <laughs> and then the red, little red um, dress, please. We'll save the little red dress for a minute. Yeah, um, so I know uh, a few times um, I've been told Michaela's been saying stuff, like when when I were, when the fight with Eva got announced, um, I knew she was a bit bitter over that, um, so I just kind of, that's what I kind of ignored, because that's not me, that's, that style's not me to be going mm. out and arguing online. Uh, but then I asked, like, this, I've been seeing a few interviews she's been doing where she's uh, calling me out and stuff like that, so I don't know if isolation's getting to me or what, but finally I bit the other day <laughs> and I said something back, and from that it just went a little bit crazy, but it, it's quieting down there. But that's not my style, but if I think there's only so much you can, someone can uh, keep call, like calling you out before you actually buy it. Every now and again, it's nice just to remind everybody who uh, who the boss is. You know what I mean? You've well, yeah. Got to let them know. Tell you. Um, have you? Um, I, I can only assume uh, from your Instagram uh, that you and Jen have been watching quite a bit of Tiger King. <laughs> <laughs> I think. Um, Andrew Andrew shaved his beard today, and he's done. He's gone for his back same look. I think it's. It's Carol Baskin and yes. getting everyone, isn't it? Well, for those that don't know, I encourage you to go to Terry's uh, Instagram account. Just have a little bit of a scroll down because <laughs> I'd tell you something, Jen Exotic looks looks mint, mate. I'd tell you, took it to the next <laughs> level. <laughs> <laughs> have you had uh, conversations at all with Matchroom and with Eddie? Obviously, you were supposed to be fighting last night uh, with yeah. Tasha. We were all looking forward to that fight. I assume because the fans were absolutely pumped for it, that there's going to be some type of rescheduling. 
Yeah, um, I haven't really been told any any more in, like, info on fire date or anything like that, but yeah. I do strongly believe um, we'll be getting a fight day in the next couple of weeks, hopefully, fingers crossed. And then, and I also believe it's going to end up happening behind closed doors. Yeah. It's a um, shame, that. It's a shame, isn't yeah. it, Gareth? Because the, the fans yeah. in Donny, and obviously the, the British fans, were pumped. That was a, an absolute historic moment that a lot of fans wanted to be there to witness in person. Well, Donny's a fight town. We know that. I mean, it's produced a lot of great uh, boxers down the years. Um, let, me, let me take you to, back to the little red number. What was that all about? Have you been, have, I, sorry, I've been locked away for 38 days, remember? Um, <laughs> um, t- tell us the, the kind of uh, the genesis of, of, you, of you doing that. Because um, it's um, not just you, it's other women as well, isn't it? Boxers. Yeah. Uh, so there was a challenge, a challenge going around. Um, I think it was a knockout challenge. So um, I think it was Ebony, Ebony Bridges from... Uh, Australia. Um, she got me involved. Oh no, it was. Um, I've got a name now. Anyway, so Cecil- we got was it Cecilia the... or not? No. Um, my mind's gone blank. But anyway, I got asked to join in on this challenge. So there's the bit where you're in your boxing gear, yeah. and then you get, and then there's a bit where you reveal and you. You you scrubbed up, you're in your dress or whatever. That's why you could Yeah, so it's just showing you the opposite sides. But then um, a few days earlier, I did a live uh, Instagram interview with Eddie and um, someone had told me a few comments that I got said on there, but I, I didn't really see them until um, I got told after. And it were a few people saying that I look like a man. So, like, in, jokingly, I put the video Nonsense. on. Yeah, I kind of put, I put the video on as a joke and saying, this is, this is for those... Um, for the trolls that were saying I oh, like a man and then it just kind of it was on Twitter so it kind of went a bit a bit crazy but I had some good uh, good feedback off the video <laughs> <laughs> Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. 
Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Now, this month is the anniversary of Floyd Mayweather versus Jose Luis Castillo. It's the fight that many boxing fans will tell you that Mayweather lost. And I know that he's 50 and all. Well, 49 and all. 50 and all if you know Conor McGregor. Um, but this is the one that was most contentious. So we decided to get our mate, Dan Raphael, to come and join us to have a conversation about that fight to discuss whether Mayweather got away with one. Inside the ropes, Floyd Mayweather Jr. is brilliant. The only question here tonight is whether that nine-pound advantage coming into the ring that Castillo has will be meaningful. There he knocks Castillo down, but Vic Draculic rules it a slip. Castillo manages to dig a left hand to the body, and now pops a right hand upstairs as Mayweather is backed against the rope. Castillo said, I'm going to pressure it. You have succeeded to the degree to which Castillo has succeeded so far. Without question, the first four rounds were dominated by Mayweather. I gave Castillo the third, but in rounds five and six, Jose Luis Castillo seemed to take over. Little change up now as Castillo begins to go upstairs. It's a fight. So there goes the point deduction advantage as now Draculic evens it up by taking one from Mayweather. In the championship rounds, 10, 11, and 12, Jose Luis Castillo just took control of the fight. 115, 111, 7, 4, 1 even, Jose Luis Castillo. John Kane and Jerry Roth both have it 115 to 111. Enik Hong Tong Kam scores it 116 to 111 for the winner by unanimous decision and new lightweight champion of the world, the undefeated pretty boy, Floyd Mayweather. Not the fight we saw. I don't look at it as though he got away with one, but I felt like Castillo should have kept his title, and that's because uh, although I was not present ringside, I was covering boxing at that time for USA Today and watching on television. I scored that fight a draw. I thought that Castillo fought a very, very good fight. Uh, you know, gave Floyd a lot of trouble. Remember, Floyd was uh, moving up to the lightweight division for the first time. He'd been totally dominant at the 130-pound weight class and been a champion and, you know, was you know a little more than a year off of what I still to this day consider maybe the best win of his career, a domination, five knockdowns against Chico Corrales. Yeah. Uh, and then... Castillo, you know, was a very tough customer. You know, he had beaten Stevie Johnston, another slick boxer also, maybe not as slick as Floyd, but had beaten him to win the title. And, uh, you know, he gave Floyd all kinds of problems. And he, and he, he, he uh, I thought, deserved the draw that night. And, you know, if he, had, if he had gotten a draw or even the win, just think about how it may have changed the course of history in terms of Mayweather no longer having that perfect record. What he did do that night, brilliantly, Castillo, was create some kind of blueprint and Mayweather was only 25 at the time let's remember that and he wasn't yeah. at his best I think for another three to four years at his very peak if you like maybe even further um, and you know it was transitioning from that 
uh, kind of exciting style into the very brilliant defensive style that he had later on. Castillo that night was so smart to go to the midsection though, Dan. That was the key to the victory. I had it a draw as well, by the way. Um, okay. I don't think he should have should have lost his, his title that night. Obviously, the WBC uh, title and the lineal and the ring magazine uh, title on the line, wasn't it? But what Castillo showed that night was that there was a way to take that version of Mayweather on. Well, the thing that's interesting about the way that the scores went down is that even if you thought that Floyd was the rightful winner, I mean, pretty much everybody thought the fight was super close. And when they had the rematch, you know, at the end of 2002, you know, an immediate rematch, uh, Floyd, you know, made his point and, and I thought dominated the rematch and, and clearly was the winner of that fight. Yet the scorecards were closer on the rematch than they were on the first fight. So the judges, mm-hmm. I think, were kind of all mixed up on both fights. Uh, and Floyd ended up, you know, with a, with a, a closer victory in the second fight than he probably warranted. And, and got the win, uh, you know, maybe a little wider in the first fight that most people thought that he didn't warrant. Even if you thought he was the winner, it might, should have been slightly closer. Um, you know, those, that was an interesting rivalry. And if you look back over Floyd's entire career, 50 professional fights, mm. I think it's fair to say that the first match with Castillo was probably his toughest bout in terms of the competition. Now, there's other guys that maybe hit him a little bit more and, and gotten to him, but he still was able to win the dominating you know, in a dominant, you know, win the rounds. Like, for example, Emmanuel Augustus fight was a very tough fight, but he stopped him. Miguel Cotto fight, a very tough fight. He obviously pulled away, won that fight, uh, you know, and maybe a couple of others we could look at. But Marcus certainly, Maidana, Marcus Madonna, of course. Yeah, Madonna won Oscar fight, but the Castillo fight, that's the one that when you really examine all 50 of those fights, that's the one night where there's a lot of people that thought he should not have had his hand raised. And, uh, you know, Sometimes you get the you get and you can't make the argument that he was like the necessarily the house favorite because that night uh, again I wasn't there but just knowing uh, the makeup of the crowd from watching you know it was a very largely pro Mexican crowd and Castillo was a Mexican fighter so it wasn't like uh, you know Floyd got some kind of gift decision because of of mm-hmm. the crowd support and the and the people going crazy and cheering for him even though he was you know ultimately made Las Vegas his home but Castillo was the crowd favorite being uh, you know a Mexican fighter. Dan, did this rivalry with Castillo change Floyd as a fighter? Because for those that maybe have only come to Floyd's career post maybe Oscar De La Hoya, you might think that he's quite a negative back foot uh, defensive type of fighter. Early pretty boy Floyd used to knock guys out. Was this the change for you? Did this change something uh, in his mental makeup? I don't know about if I would go that far. I mean, you know, certainly when he was turned professional and threw his first championship at 130, he was knocking a lot of guys out. You know, he was uh, overpowering some of those opponents. You see what he did to Diego Corrales. Yeah. Uh, you know, who, you know, regardless of that way that, you know, he was weight drained, but Mayweather made it not matter because he put him down so many times. He had so many dominating victories against Gennaro Hernandez to win the title, man, Freddie, you know, just a great run at 130. When he got to 135, the guys were a little bigger, a little stronger. Uh, mm-hmm. And remember, he only stayed in that weight class for a very brief period of time. He had the two fights with, with Castillo where, you know, he won the title, gave him the rematch, and uh, won that fight. And he only had two more fights in the weight division and not, uh, you know, not a, long, not a long reign in the weight class. He was there for really like a year and a half before he went up uh, and spent a brief period of time at 140 where he just had a, a few fights, really not any, any, any uh, top, top opponents. You know, the one big win was the Gaddy fight when he won the title at that weight class. Yeah. Uh, and then it was off to 147, where really, really became, uh, you know, the money Mayweather, the, the, money, the, yeah. the fighter that we've known as far as just 
you know, really exploded on the scene in terms of not only a brilliant fighter, but also in terms of a star, in terms of his pay-per-views and attraction, because that's when he, you know, broke onto pay-per-view with fights like Judah and Valdemir and then went to the next level with the De La Hoya fight. And then, of course, you know, it was, uh, you know, off to the races with some mega, mega, mega fights. Granted, the De La Hoya fight was in junior middleweights, but he came back down to welterweight and fought a number of other fights in that weight class. Mm, it was sensational. Uh, for anybody listening, it's well worth having a little bit of a look at the uh, Castillo fight in April of 2002. Um, maybe the one that Floyd Mayweather got away with. Uh, what are you two gentlemen talking about this week? Because I know that you're catching up on a regular basis now. What's on the uh, What's on the agenda this week, Gareth? Well, well, I'll be jilting you um, with Dan on Monday, yeah. hopefully. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, cheating no, on me. Gonna... Cheating on me. Yeah. Exactly. Again. Again. <laughs> ag- ag- again. Um, look, uh, Dan and I have just decided. Um, uh, I know Dan's going to be picked up very soon by some big outlets after him leaving ESPN. I, I, he's, he's, as I said earlier on the show, he's one of the hardest working men in, in boxing showbiz, prolific writer, a f- terrific man who I've known 20 years. And basically, um, for us, chatting is like money for old rope. So on Monday, when the news progresses, we'll chat on whatever's happening. I don't know if you've got any ideas yet, Dan, but I'm happy to wait till Monday. Yeah, that's fine. I mean, we can always shoot an email. You know, well, I'm also always interested in to, to hear about, besides our boxing conversation, I'm always interested to hear what, you know, Gareth likes to tell me what he's cooking for dinner that night. <laughs> there you go, go then. Maybe, you know, pass him along. Now, there's a show. <laughs> Gareth A. Davis and Dan Raphael, cooking program. That's the next level. Back to the present day now, uh, and Anthony Fowler was on the show at the weekend. Now, you may have seen him being quite active on social media recently with another fighter, not in his weight category. Him and O'Hara Davis are having a bit of a back and forth, so me and him had a talk about it. What's the psychological aspect of it all like? Because normally you've got light at the end of the tunnel, you're normally training for something, and there's no date set at the moment, is there? So what's that like? I don't know. I, I spoke to Eddie a lot longer when he said it's like the, the, the highly considering. I see shows behind closed doors, maybe the end of June, July. Yeah. So like, um, it's given me a little bit of a target. So obviously, I know I can stay in reasonable condition. I get down with Shane. Have a have a little six weeks six weeks with Shane. I'm ready to go, kind of thing. So it's um, I'm trying to stay motivated. And I I do got Jenny and Jude training, and I, I enjoy eating clean and I enjoy the lifestyle. So I'm just trying to like stay focused, but. Obviously, I'm not in camp mode. I'm not like studying fights. I'm not like dieting to the extreme as I normally do. But I'm just trying to keep myself taking over. So if I do get a chance to fight in say six weeks, I'll, I'll be ready. You just mentioned Shane there. Obviously, that's <clears throat> a recent change. Last time out, we didn't necessarily get to see uh, the best. That mainly down to the opponent and what have you. But how's it going? How, how has that change been? And and what developments has there been to the game since you've been with him? Yeah, no, I've I've really enjoyed like he's um he's training me completely different to how I say my day four but it will work on the opposite strengths like using me height, my reach, my footwear. Different stuff whereas with Dave I was working a lot on pressure and inside fighting and stay in the pocket type of thing. So I've like flipped it on the head what I'm working on, but I've also got all the, the skills of letting with Dave, all the inside work which I went out to Dave, I couldn't be boxing inside. Dave helped me a lot with my body shots and me my head movement and stuff. So mm. I've got the best of both. They're both great coaches. They're both teaching me different stuff. But um, Shane's really big in S and C as well. Like I'm, I'm, I'm quite a bit bigger now as well. I'm, my last fight I got in the ring like something like twelve stone one, which normally I've, I've been in the ring yeah. like eleven, nine, eleven, ten. So Shane's put a bit of muscle on me as well. He, he's very big on like conditioning. Shane, he, he does a lot of like circuits and weights and stuff with you. And like I've definitely gone a bit bigger as well. So 
I feel bigger and stronger in there, and I, just, I feel a lot more relaxed in there as well. I'm a lot more like free with me, me guard now. I'm not like with Dave, I was really like hands height up constantly. Shade likes me to be a bit more loose, a bit more flow when I can use me reaching. Just I can, I can play a bit more with my hands rather than having a consistent guard up. And I feel I feel a bit more comfortable. When I was like a young boxer, I used to box with no guard. I'm not sure if you've ever seen any amateur fights, but yeah. I literally didn't have a guard. I used to just have my hands by my waist and I used to just roll it, move my head and just like flick shots up on my hip. And I, I, I had a lot of success with that style because I put really long arms and I'm, I'm powerful and fit. So people couldn't see the shots coming. And I'm trying to work on that a bit more with Shane now as well, like bringing the shots up rather than like, no, a bit more bit predictable, like just constantly punching in the same position, mm. like mixing the fires, either shots up. So there's no chance of you going down to 147. I thought that you were making fights with fighters at lightweight now. <laughs> <laughs> Made that fella. No, we can always have to stop and wind you up. Like I'll try my best as well <laughs> to try and stay like, what's the word, politically correct on Twitter and just be like, oh, nice and nice and at me. But sometimes people just get to you, mate, and like, he's one of them fellas, and he's always like made little slight digs about me. You know, I've rather ignored him for years because. I just thought, you know what, he's not worth it, but I am in lockdown, mate. I'm sitting in the house and I'm, yeah. I'm, <laughs> I've got nothing, nothing else to do. And I've got him giving me um, the grief over something stupid on um, Twitter about that Devin Haney thing. Basically, he tried to condone what Devin Haney said. Yeah. I, I basically said, if I said it about a black lad or a black boy even, I'd get slaughtered. And he somehow managed to flip that into me being racist, but Devin Haney wasn't, which is makes no sense at all. But he just wound me up, basically, so I... I'm, I generally would have him go down to 115 just punch his face in, mate, and I would have to starve myself for like 12 weeks for that, but I would do it happily just to punch his face in. <laughs> for, for people listening, it's a Harry Davis that you're talking about, and you you have yeah, you, you, two, you two have been going back and forth on social media, as you rightfully said there. You're all, everybody's in lockdown, idle hands and what have you, so you're on your phone all the time, and if there's a little bit of something mm-hmm. to get stuck into, then you can get stuck into it, and you two have been doing that definitely over o- over the last week. Like, like, yeah. and, and it, it has come sadly because of a race dispute. You obviously had your opinion on what uh, Devin Haney said. Listen, everybody's entitled to that opinion. I've had my opinion on that. And he's, mm. and he's responded to what you said. And then it just seems, do you think it's gone too far now with, with you two or, or not? I'm, I'm not a real person. I'm not like a false person. If I say something, I genuinely mean it. Like, a lot of people think like, you're trying to build up fights and stuff. I'm, I'm not. Like, I'm generally, I'm generally not about. I'm not really bothered about all that. I just want to win belts and stuff. That's, that's my goals. I'm, mm. I'm not about. I don't. I don't look at money. I look at success. I want to be British champion, European champion, world champion. They're my goals. So like, but when I get people like him, they just like disrespect me on Twitter and like call me racist. And he's already said stuff about Liverpool before in the past, mate. So avoid, avoid not like them. So like, he, he just kicked me off a little bit and um. Even like me bear my girlfriend was like saying, me can't calm down, that's what he wants. But I am like a real person and, I, and like I know that I didn't, and I'm just <laughs> seeing the seat me, I know I just don't want to and give him a smack. And I know what I'm like. But like you say, you're, you're a prize fighter, right? And you're, you're, a, you're yeah. a lad that has been in the amateur game and got every blooming medal under the sun. You're now obviously making your way to the pro game. And then fans will see you say, right, all right, then let's have a bare knuckle fight. Let's get let's get on the cobbles and have a little bit of a scrap that way. Yeah, that that, that that's a fair fight, isn't it? It's a legal way to do, to do things, which is, which is even better. Yeah, but what <laughs> what I'm saying is, there's for for like you say, you're a, what, currently fighting at 154 pounds. He's currently fighting at 145, 140 pounds. When you when you look yeah. at when you look at it from the outside in, I get, I get 
listen, you're fighters. Somebody disrespects you, you're going to respond. It's just naturally in your DNA to be able to do that. But sometimes, as your girlfriend's kind of alluded to there, some people are, <laughs> some people are just looking for a rise, aren't they? And social media is not yeah. the greatest place to be doing the rising. No, no, no. You're all right, man. You know what? You're completely right. I think what it is, I think you've just said, I am stuck on the house, mate, and I am used to being active. So I think I've probably got a little bit more angry than what I normally would have. Do you know what I mean? When I'm stuck, when I'm stuck in the house, I need to let some steam off me a bit more, though, right? In the gym, mate, because obviously I'm up doing pads, I'm up sparring. I've probably yeah. got a lot, of, like, a, lot more, a lot more angry than me than I normally have, to be honest. But, like, you're all right what you're saying, but I just like people like it, mate, they just they, they go through me, do you know, like, they just. To like pop, pop a keyboard warrior I know for a fact he wouldn't fight me do you know what I mean I know he wouldn't fight me mate and he, he showed us three colours in that fight with Josh Taylor like you'd never ever 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 see me turn my back on someone in a fight and walk away like, like a coward mate never, I couldn't do it I could never live, I could never look in the mirror again at myself I'd lose all respect for myself and that's what he done mate I mean he, he, he walked away mate in a prize fight but on national TV turned his back on his opponent mate, and walked away because he, he didn't want to fight do you know what I mean it was embarrassing so regarding serious fights, then with guys in your weight category, what what have the conversation <laughs> what have the conversations been like with your promoter recently, and, and what is the direction once once COVID's all done and we're allowed to go back to it, and it looks like it'll be behind closed doors for a, a short period of time. What, what's what's the plan for you, mate? Well, I am. Um, I had that fight with them. Um, obviously, Fitzgerald penciled in for July eighteenth yeah. in Liverpool. Yeah, that was meant to be happening. That was meant to be happening, and then obviously this has all happened. So I don't really know where that where, where we stand. Because obviously, they also the British Boxing Board Control obviously said um, Metcalf was mandated to, to fight Scott as well. So yeah. that was a bit of a span in the works as well. That that's been delayed now though. So I'm hoping myself once everything kicks back on after the boxing show starting, and me and Scott can fight, and then the winner can fight Metcalf. That's what, that's what I'm hoping for. Yeah. Scott's, but, uh, Scott's in a bit of a situation though at the moment, isn't he? And, and listen, I know you're not a bad lad, and I know that you two have had. Uh, bad words in the past, but I'm sure you've got a thought on everything that he's going through at the moment. Yeah, no, listen, I'm, I actually put a post on me because I'm not I'm one to kick someone with a dime, do you know what I mean? Like, like, and uh, to be fair, Scott, obviously, we don't like each other, I'm not going to lie about that, but I have got respect for him in the sense that the performance he put in against myself like, and against and against Cheeseman as well, he, he's um, he's proved himself to be a top quality fighter, so hmm. I respect him a lot, I respect him for that, and I, I hope he gets all those problems sorted of me because. I want, I want a chance to, for revenge. I want, I want, I want a chance for revenge. But you know what? I'm at that point in my life where I don't really care anymore. I just want to um, keep moving on. Now I'm in a new gym, got a, a fresh outlook. Mm. For example, if Scott got stripped sort of from his belts because of what's happened, and I fight Metcalf and I win that British title, I'll be over the moon, mate, and, then I, and I'll be looking forward, and I won't be looking towards necessarily Scott, Scott, Scott. I would love to defend against Scott if he sorts himself out, but. I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm over it now, kind of thing, to the point where I just want to get move on my life and just keep moving forward now to like to like big titles and to achieve my dreams that I, I've set out since I was a kid. Yeah. And I was 11 year old kid. And I didn't think, oh, I want to beat Scott Fitzgerald for a British title. I said I wanted to be world champion and I, I want to keep moving towards that rather than like stalling my career. Where the last like year or so, I've just been aiming for, for him constantly, mm-hmm. and like it just keeps getting put out, put off. Like <laughs> him, him, like him, whatever he's been done with. This corona, it's like everything's in the way of it. So I just need to keep moving forward, keep working hard, and then hopefully these these belts will come. Now I'm sure you've heard the name Jamel Herring, who is the WBO junior lightweight champion. 
You might not know too much about his backstory. It is absolutely fascinating. And as you will hear in this conversation, I think me and Gareth are going to start trying to write a Hollywood movie script and see if we can make a few quid out of it because it is seriously Rocky Balboa-esque. It helps as well. It's just a top look as you're about to hear. Here he is, Jamel Herring, on with us at the weekend. It is the WBO Junior Lightweight World Champion, Jamel Herring. Welcome to the show, sir. How are you? I'm all right. Thank you for having me on. It's, it's an honor. No, listen, oh. it's an honor to have you with us, my friend. Um, we are obviously going to talk boxing. Um, I know that it's a little bit difficult at the moment with us all being on lockdown and the no dates in concrete for us all to get excited about. But there is a fight with Carl Frampton that a lot of people are speaking about. So we'll get to that a little bit later on. But I want our audience... Uh, to know a little bit more about you. And my first crossing of you, the first time I came across uh, Jamel Herring as a boxer, was in the 2012 Olympics. It was my first real proper big assignment, I suppose, covering boxing at the London 2012 Olympics. And obviously you were over here. And the thing that I was fascinated about is that uh, you were still, if I'm, if I'm, I might be mistaken, but I think you were still serving as a, as a Marine at that point. Is that true? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. I was actually the only um, U.S. Marine to compete in the London games at the time. So that was a, that was a huge um, honor and achievement. And that had not been done, I don't think, Gareth, since 1992. I mean, like you said, an amazing, an amazing honor. But uh, for, to be the first guy for the best part of 20-odd years to do that, again, another, uh, another thing that you can tick off the bucket list. Yes, sir. <laughs> yes, yes, sir. <laughs> the last Marine was um, before me was Sergio Reyes, who competed alongside with Oscar De La Hoya. On the 1992 mm. Olympic, Olympic U.S. team. Jamel, going into the Marines, was obviously you're there as an active serviceman and, and doing your job, but I'm assuming that that was your first introduction uh, into the world of boxing. Or had you done it at a, at a, at a younger age um, um, from, uh, b- before you'd obviously become an active serviceman? I, I honestly started boxing at um, around 15 years old, but majority of my, my boxing skill and um, experience, it came under the guidance of the Marine Corps. So I did, I did two years amateur before I joined the Marine Corps, but, but most of my experience came within my time as a U.S. Marine. Mm. Now, Jamel, um, Semper Fidelis, I really want to say, first of all, it's your ring moniker. Thank you. Al- <laughs> always faithful. If I write a script about a boxer, it's coming down to two people for a Hollywood movie. It's either Jamel <laughs> William Herring or Tyson Fury. And right now, the more I learn about you, your story is a Hollywood blockbuster. Let me begin, right? How the hell yeah. do you make super featherweight at five foot ten at the age of 34 <laughs> for a start? Um, that just defies logic. That, <laughs> that, 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 comes, that comes with having a, um, pretty much a great nutritionist, um, perfecting athletes. That, that's who... Um, basically keeps me grounded um 
and, and mainly be, it comes down to discipline. You know, you got to be disciplined. And you got to, like, for me, I, I, I have that hunger still. So I, I want to, you know, do great things in boxing still. So, of course, I'm not going to go out here and blow up in between fights. But that's pretty – and um, I guess I can say I have great metabolism in the, in the end, but that's, mm-hmm. how I, that's how I do it. Um, Adam knows that I go wobbly over a backstory, okay? So – you, as you say, I was at London 2012 at the Games as well, but rewind 10 years, you join the Marine Corps um, and you do two lots of service in Iraq, one at uh, Fallujah, um, and we, we, we know the history of these things. Um, it's the first part of two things I want to ask you about. How were you affected by being there and... What was life there? Were you on patrol on foot a lot of the time? Oh yeah, especially um, I was young. I was still about nineteen years old during my first deployment. So, you know, it, it was definitely a, a huge um, experience in life in general. Um, I did especially with dealing with Fallujah. Uh, we we dealt with a lot of we uh, had to work with a lot of other troops as well. You know, guys, um, troops from the UK, of course, um, and another branch of the service in the US. So we basically, um, you know, I, I got to you know, mingle more and um, just, just learn just learn how others lived, including the people in Iraq. But it was definitely a, a huge um, impact on my life, well, which I still carry on today. How easy how easy is it, Jamal, to, to integrate back into normal, what we would class as civilian life? I mean, you, you've gone on to become a professional athlete off the back of this, but how, how do you reintegrate into normal society after seeing the things that you've seen at war? Um, it actually, actually, it actually takes a while because, because um, you know, that's a whole that's a whole life changing experience. And if you're over there for about you know seven months or closer to a year, you know, in, in the bat- on the battlefield, it, de- it definitely affects you coming back home. And you have to like readjust to everything. But one thing I, I, I've taken from that is, um, you know, I appreciated life a lot more and the things that I have in life after dealing with my experiences over in Iraq. But yeah, it, it definitely um, it definitely takes a toll on you after a while. Um, Jamel, I've spoken to several um, boxers and mixed martial artists. Brian Stan um, being uh, having won a medal um, for serving in Iraq with the Marine Corps. You may know of Brian, um, the mixed right. martial artist. Um, you've been brilliant uh, recently in in opening up about post traumatic stress disorder, um, and I and I understand that. In part, that was from watching Tyson Fury, uh, if, if I'm correct. Can you talk to us, if you are able to, about this a little? Um, um, yeah, um, Tyson Fury definitely was a huge inspiration of, of, you know, to me opening up about it. I remember my mother, um, Janine Herring, she had actually started seeing the, um, you know, the difference in my, in my posture and attitude when I was coming home from Iraq. Mm-hmm. And it was actually my wife. Jennifer, who actually um, influenced me to go, you know, seek help about it because I was going through a lot with PTSD. I, I was in a bad mm. spot. Um, mm. You know, I was going through, I was going through heavy depression. But you know, when I when I seen Tyson Fury's story and what he'd been through, it kind of opened my eyes that you know that I'm not the only one out here that's dealing with it. And you know that that influenced me not only to go get help for myself, but to go out there and um, share my story with others as well. And I, you know, I give I give a huge credit to Tyson Fury for helping me out. Um, you know, making that transaction. We were, were you were you were you acting because you're a tough guy anyway? 
were, were you just bottling it up? And was it the realization? I think we have realized this in the last few years that you can be tough, but you can be open and emotional. Yeah, definitely, definitely. That was a huge part of it because I, I was dealing with um, PTSD, a, a, a huge part of my even my pro career after after my service to the Marine Corps because I thought, you know, just being a Marine, you had to be tough, so you had to bottle all your feelings and emotions. But when I seen that, you know, how the lineal heavyweight champion of the world, how he shared his story, mm. you know, of being a big, tough guy mm. himself, it kind of, you know, it kind of let me, let, you know, told me that, you know, you can be, you can, it, it takes a strong man to open up and, and you know, share yeah. his um, feelings and, and, and voice his opinion with the world. So that, that's totally. how I basically came out and um, started sharing my story. No, it's important that you do that, man. There'll be people listening to, to our show tonight, and I'm sure they're going through those types of things that, you know, they're, they're using coping mechanisms that are maybe negative and taking them down the wrong path. We know of Tyson's. I mean, was that something that you were involved with, Jamel? Were you, were you, I mean, obviously, one's something like oh, drink yeah. or something. Were you oh, turning yeah. to drink and things and, and what have you? Yeah, definitely, definitely. I thought, like, you know, just being a, um, a Marine, you know, Marine, Marines, they, they like to party and, and drink and do things like that. And for a yeah. while, you know, I was doing I was doing a lot of that heavily. Just how, like, you know, how Tyson was going through his phase at one point. But then, you know, once I... um. You know, once I seen that I was getting nowhere and I was basically, ready, you know, crashing into a wall, that's when I decided that, you know, this is the way I want to go about things. So I had to, um, you know, gather myself up and, you know, do it right not only for, not only for me, but for my family and the people who look up to me. So um, since then, you know, I've been on the right path and I've just been trying to, you know, spread a, um, more of a positive influence out there and just open up to people and, and potentially help, hopefully save lives as well. So when... Obviously, that you have that light bulb moment, and you start to turn your life around with the help of uh, of your family, and and make that step into professional boxing. What was the plan? Was the plan a career, or was the plan always that greater goal? Because I know what Marines are like; they're very headstrong. They've always got that end goal in mind. Was it to become a world champion? Um, yeah, the plan was always to become a world champion. Even through my ups and downs, I definitely had to make a lot of changes. In order to get to that that goal, um, yeah, yeah. like I said, even me coming down and wait, uh, even at my age, but it definitely was just to stay clean, um, have a sharp, positive mindset about things, and, and, and you know, and, and just never give up on your goals and dreams. Because I never wanted to be known as somebody who just you know gave up and, and was a quitter. So definitely, um, the goal was always not only just to be a world champion, but just to be a better person in life. Well, yeah. look, we've started writing the Hollywood blockbuster, Jamal, <laughs> right? And so, so well, the next the next ten conversations we have, we'll be writing that through. That's so, right. But, That's right. But but we've twenty percent. We, we're on twenty percent, Jamal. Just to let yeah. you know. Right. Um, we, we've got the Hollywood blockbuster side, but let's talk about your boxing because you're in a terrific division. As I say, you are a monster at super featherweight, 130 pounds, an enormous fighter, uh, judging by the, the men who are generally in that division. Um, you hold the World Boxing Organization title, of course. Who of the others, WBC's Miguel Burchelt, uh, Oscar Valdez, who's highly ranked and he's number one challenger, of course, to you, Leo Santa Cruz, Joseph Diaz. Um, who and what route would you like to take? Uh, you're still with Bob Arum, aren't you? Yes, sir. Still with um, Bob what, Arum, what, We want him in Belfast, Gareth. We like want him in Belfast take? against Carl Frampton. That's where we well, want well, him, don't Oh, we? and there's the dastardly <laughs> Carl Frampton as well. There's the, so talk to us about Carl Frampton and all those other guys. What's the route in your head and with Bob Arum? Um, obviously, of course, Bob, um, 
Carl Frampton is definitely the first guy on, you know, on the list. Um, I got to give a huge credit to Carl because, um, you know, it was actually hard for me to try to get those unification fights. But um, yeah. Carl Frampton, a man like himself and a gentleman, he actually wanted to step up to the plate and um, make make the make the fight, which is why when they brought the when they brought up the whole topic of going to Belfast, I had no issue doing that because you know Carl Frampton has, has achieved a lot, far more than I have in in the pro in the pro boxing scene, and you know he, he's a two division world champion, so I was going to, I wanted to give him that respect for him for for one taking the fight, and that's why you know and a lot of people also don't know I'm, I've been a huge fan of Frampton. You know I watched the Wellington fights. I, I, I watched the quick fight. You know, I watched him fight with Nonino Donaire. So, you know, I was mm. a fan long before I even even thought of fighting in Carl Frampton. But, you know, like I said, um, I have to focus on Frampton first. But, of course, I want to mix it up with the other world champions, such as um, the Bachelts and the Leo Santa Cruz's and, and, the, and those guys as well. Do you think yeah. it, at, at any point, Jamel, I mean, you're obviously comfortable with everything that you're doing nutrition-wise, to make 130, but you are a big boy. Um, is, there, is, there an, uh, is there an ambition maybe to become a, a multi-weight world champion or are you happy just to stay at 30 and unify that division? Oh, the, the, of course. The goal is always to, um, you know, to win more titles in other divisions. Um, you know, like I said, the super featherweight division is just a high division right now, of course, yeah. but we all know how the politics and boxing may, you know, may play out where you can't become you know, maybe the undisputed champion. So you're, mm. you're lucky if you can, you know, unify with, with another world champion. But if an opportunity comes at hand where I can move up and wait and wait and fight for another world title, you know, that's the route I will do. Well, there's so many great fights for you at lightweight as well. Vasil Lomachenko, Devin Haney, Javonta Davis, Teofimo Lopez, mm. uh, Luke Campbell, our own. I mean, God, my, I'm, I'm just salivating at the thoughts of all these fights. You're 34... But you're a young 34. Have you got two, three, four years left still, Jamel? Yeah, as long as I continue to, um, to take care of my body and, and just live um, yeah. the right way outside the ring, I believe I, I can go as far as I possibly want to go. But like I said, um, for now, I'm just taking it a day at a time. Um, like I said, Carl Frampton's the next guy on the menu. Um, I, have to be, I have to be sharp because Carl definitely, where I, where I went at size, Carl definitely beats me in, in experience. So I have to give him that same respect. And just, you know, going there with, with the right mindset that, you know, the Carl Frampton fight can potentially be the last fight. So I got to take every fight serious. Now, as ever with these podcasts and with us being in lockdown, you need a couple of fights to watch this week just to tide you over, maybe something from the vault, something from the archives, just to get you in the mood for when live fights come back. Um, I decided to pick a classic between Hagler and Ray Leonard. And Gareth went for a trilogy. Great performance by Sugar Ray Leonard so far, Tim. Great performance. 
Some words from Hagler. He's not happy at all with the showboating of Leonard, but he's going to have to find a way to do something about it. When you don't have any respect for a guy, Tim, you can do things like that, and apparently Ray Leonard doesn't have any respect at all for Marvelous Marvin Hagler. Leonard in the corner at the end of this fight, but on his feet. Interesting scoring, Tim. You know, do you, like, you like the plotting guy or do you like the flash? Winner by a split decision and new middleweight champion of the world, second, Will Lindner. Sensational. The fight that I've chosen for you to go back and have a look in the archives is Marvin Hagler versus Sugar Ray Leonard. Now, you may remember a couple of weeks ago, we did an extensive uh, uh, review of uh, Hagler Hearns, probably the best three rounds in boxing history. It was absolutely sensational. But this fight intrigues me uh, just as much. And the reason for that is the length of layoff that Sugar Ray Leonard uh, had had. I think he'd had one fight since 1982. This one took place in April of 1987. And, of course, Marvin Hagler was the man. He was the main man, undefeated for such a long period of time. Uh, in this division, and it was Ray Leonard stepping up in weight, uh, coming back off that lengthy, lengthy way out, and injury, retina uh, injury as well. Um, the bookies uh, underdog, uh, according to the Las Vegas uh, bookies, but obviously, as you just heard there, he came through and got a sensational victory against Marvelous Marvin Hagler by split decision to be crowned the middleweight champion of the world. It's it's one of those Rocky Balboa moments for me, Gareth. I know that Sugar Ray Leonard is one of the greatest of all time. There's no question about that. So we shouldn't ever underestimate his talents. But just all the things that I was just mentioning there, the length of the layoff, the injury, <clears throat> stepping up in weight uh, to a division, taking on an absolute warrior in Marvin Hagler, who had dominated that division for such a long period of time. It, it is a Rocky Balboa story. It is Hollywood. It was unthinkable that he could do it at that time. Of course, with hindsight, we look back at it now and go, of course, it's Sugar Ray Leonard. Of course he did it. But the performance that night, was outrageous. Yeah, it was. It was. It was. It was spect. He. He was. He was Floyd Mayweather defensively, um, but he was Manny Pacquiao offensively. And obviously, that fight took five years to make. So did this one. Mm. Um, it was a brilliant performance. And of course, um, I've got a little story. Actually, I was in Morocco with Marvin Hagler. It was a few years back. Um, um, we'd had. I think I'd had sheep's brain the night before and he refused to eat it in the hotel. <laughs> I was on a, I was on a, it's a, one of my little stories here. I'll tell you the story. Um, it's, it's lockdown. So I'll tell you, it's one of those nighttime stories. I was with the Laureus World Sports Foundation on a, on a, on a, a charity trip to Morocco in which we, myself, a couple of other journalists, Marvin Hagler, Daly Thompson, and Nawal El Mutawakel, who was the first... Um, Muslim woman to win a gold medal in the Olympics. She won, I think it was the 400 wow. meter hurdles in Los Angeles. And she was the sports minister of Morocco at the time. And we were in Casablanca for the night. And we went to visit these girls in, in, in these kind of schools, if you like, in the countryside where they were teaching them not to get married early, but yep. to play sports and be very independent. Well, I knew I was going to interview Marvin that afternoon on the basketball court because we played the girls at basketball. And um, they, they were like taller than us all, you know? I mean, it was amazing. I was on the court playing basketball with Marvin Hagler and Daley Thompson against these girls who were scratching us to bits with their nails, right? I sat down after the game with Marvin Hagler 
and he showed me the inside of his forearms that were scratched and bleeding and cut to ribbons by these girls. And he said, no man ever did this to me. And, <laughs> and, I, said, and, and I did an interview with him, and the very last question, I asked him about Sugar Ray Leonard, yeah? And it was a brilliant interview, and we were sitting in the, in the Moroccan sun, and he just looked at me, growled, and walked off. And that was 20 years later, 25 wow. years later. And I tell you what, he was still a bear of a man. You wouldn't want to met him in a, in, in a, in a back alley. Um, one of my favorite, favorite fighters of all time, a brilliant man, and of course, disappeared to Italy after that, married an Italian lady, and even appeared in Spaghetti Westerns, remember, yeah. in, 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 uh, filmed in Italy. Um, for him, it, it annoyed him that fight because Leonard danced and moved and used his fast hands instead of standing and fighting. But it's yeah. one of the great fights and it's worth watching. And I've watched it a couple of times and I always have Sugar Ray winning by two or three rounds. He was yeah. just, he was a will-o'-the-wisp that night. No, brilliant choice, Adam. Absolutely brilliant choice. Now, your choice uh, this week, I've actually bought um, a sweatshirt um, from <laughs> Ro from Roots of Fight this week with the with this uh, with one of these particular fights, because he met on several occasions, one of these fights emblazoned on the front. Go for it, my friend. Introduce it. Well, uh, in 2002 and 2003, and I was privileged to be at the second of these this trilogy uh, fights between Arturo Getty and Mickey Ward. Um, Mickey Ward won two of the three. Obviously, that famous film, The Fighter, is it called? Yeah. Yes. About him and his brother. Um, very, um, and that Mickey was played a big part in and they bought out his life story. It's an incredible story. His last three fights in 2002, 2003, I was at the one in the boardwalk hall, Atlantic City, the second fight. These two guys had a trilogy of fights that was just extraordinary. I'm not joking now. You know, you know Rock'em Sock'em Robots, yep. right? They literally took turns to beat the holy crap out of each other <laughs> for three fights in a row. They're both, I think two of them were fights of the year in the Ring magazine. Yes, they were. Um, it, it was an extraordinary time. Mickey's an extraordinary character. And we've even got some words from him tonight, Adam. Mm. Um, the man himself uh, joined the boys on, uh, on Sports Bar last week to discuss this Gatti trilogy. And he suggested, weirdly, that he could have done things a little bit differently. I mean, at 38 years old, what the hell am I going to change? <laughs> You know what I mean? I, I'm going to get in great shape and just go in and go in at him. And uh, obviously, I should have moved my head more and some more movement. But at 38, I said, the hell, I'm going right after him, I guess. You know what I mean? I was just like, ah. You know, he knew my style basically. Man, what am I going to turn around and be a boxer all of a sudden? No, I just so I, uh, <laughs> I, sh I should have done that more. But, you know, I guess I'm stubborn, you know. The great Mickey Ward speaking to the guys on Sports Bar earlier this week. I mean, they are. I mean, you could pick any one of those fights. Which one have you gone for, by the way? Is there a specific one that you picked? I think the first and the, I was at the worst of the three, if you like. Yeah. The first and the third were just extraordinary. But the second one, yep. I remember being there that night. Because um, I think when the other two fights were on, I think... Michael Brody and Nassim, Khan, um, Nassim Hamid were fighting on one of those nights. Um, so I was back here. But I think um, I was out there because um, I'm pretty sure that Audley Harrison was having a fight uh, with someone out there. Um, Sean Robinson, that's right. And the guy was about five foot eight. 
He looked like he'd been dragged out of a supermarket from stacking shelves to fight Audley Harrison, who was a giant. And then suddenly, Ward and Gatti came on. They'd obviously had the first fight. Mm. Um, and they were just... It was just extraordinary because it was almost like, Adam, they had a pact that one would hit the other for a minute and for a, well maybe 75 seconds and then the other one would come back for 75 seconds <laughs> and they looked finished seven or eight times it was just unbelievable and obviously um arturo no died in very weird and tragic circumstances um and, and but they were just two lovely men and they were so clearly um, friends in the ring while they were fighting each other. That's what was so extraordinary. Mm. Um, and, and, like, it's worth watching, like uh, Hagler, Ray Leonard, because the amount of punishment these two men soak up and then give it back. Real champions. Real, real champions to the core. Bit of a different guest this week, because we've all dreamt of that ring walk, haven't we? Come on, let's be honest. You know exactly what tune you would make your walk to the octagon or to the ring too. You know exactly what you'd be wearing because you've had that dream on many occasions. DJ Majestic, our man, makes the tunes for Titan Fury. He's also making the tunes for Titan Fury's early morning workouts as well. So, we got about asking him, what makes the perfect ring walk? Speaking to a mutual friend of ours, DJ Majestic, who obviously mixed your music that particular night, and he was saying, listen, get ready, this is going to be special. When you walked out, that must have taken your breath away, because you couldn't have expected that. You couldn't have expected the reaction. It was definitely breathtaking in a way, but big shout out DJ Majestic, Absolutely. and he's hooked, he's hooked me up again for has this it? fight. He always has done from me comeback, and he's not going to let us down this time. It's going to be something special. Big Kev will be loving that. He'll be loving the shout out on TalkSport. You're listening to Fight Night on Talksport. I'm Adam Catterall. You've got Gareth A. Davis singing along to Fury's on Fire in the background. The man that obviously put uh, Old Tyson Fury's recent ring walks together musically. He's uh, our mate Kev, DJ Majestic. Welcome to the show, buddy. How are you? How are we doing, guys? Yeah, we're all good, man. Well, listen, we're all good. We're going to... Uh, Talk quite extensively about your relationship with Titan and everything that you're doing at the moment, especially with the morning workouts. But from your own personal expertise, what makes the perfect walkout tune, Matt? It's, well, it's got to be the suspense, the drama, the tension. And I always go back to, I know we, we've had some banter over it on, on air before about uh, WWE. I yeah. know you're not, not the biggest fan. But I like the walkout tunes, mate. I'm, I'm cool well, with the walkout is, tunes. This is what I'm saying. You add that element of WWE into proper fighting and you get Tyson Fury's intros. I think, <laughs> I think, I think Wilder's taking it too far with the old costumes, weighing him down, giving him excuses. That's it. <laughs> what, what are the conversations like with Tyson? Is he, is he hands-on with the music choice or does he say, listen, Kev, this is your expertise, mate. Mix me some it up. And I'll go with it. Or, or, or does he come with you to you with a creative idea? No, nah, he's he's very visionary with it. He sees like he knows what he wants, and sometimes we have some back and forth over bits that you know might work or might not work. You know, just sonically. And um, obviously, it was a proper moment in the last fight. The, the fact he came in on a uh, on the old <laughs> throne to Patsy, and yeah. even the other day we was going back and forth on um, on uh, sort of voice notes to each other, and he's like. 
He's like, nobody in the history of boxing has walked out to Patsy. <laughs> like that. <laughs> <laughs> On a crown, and singing it as well. That's it. And he said, you know, like, we're, we're creating history. I was like, you know what? Sometimes I'm not sitting there doing it in a hotel room whilst I'm on tour or something. You're just in the moment of doing what you're doing. And then only when I'm watching it back and watching the, the, how magnificent these ring walks have been, I'm like, wow, I'm involved in this. <laughs> Kevin, um, I'm sure it's a weird time for you at the moment, kind of uh, creating your music at home in lockdown like the rest of us. But how, how much of Tyson's fight weeks... Um, and fights have you actually been able to enjoy live so far? Um, well, I was the the, well, the first Wilder fight I managed to get out to yeah. LA, yeah. Um, and that was incredible. And uh, just just the uh, the atmosphere that night, and obviously seeing him get back up again. As I said, when you're living in the moment, especially with you guys out. You're like the uh, the Las Vegas brothers, you guys at the moment just living <laughs> life over there. That's the, that's the only downside for lockdown for you two. It's just you're not living it up in Vegas. But it's like, yeah, as I said, at those moments you're just like, wow, this is great. And then you look back and it's just like that that final round when he got up and I was there. You know, it's just gonna I'll be able to tell my son that in years to come. Do you know what I mean? And um, yeah. So I, because of my touring schedule, obviously it's worked quite hard to try and make it work and get to the fights. I missed. The second fight, unfortunately, because I was touring, I was uh, doing my uh, new project, this plain old care thing that I've been doing. But funnily enough, I was actually playing in Manchester that same night. And Tyson did my intro That's for fun. my show. So I'd done his intro wow. for his big gig. Wow. And he did my Listen. intro for mine. So it was quite, it was quite a nice touch. You, obviously, you know, these, these gigs are huge. And, you know, as a, as, a, as a North Londoner years back, going to Bagley's and the Cross and all those places yeah. where I began... You remember those places? You're probably well, ten then, um, but the, but the but you know, but I was there for three or four years in a row in the '90s when it was really banging and happening. Do you know what I mean? Um, yeah. That, that you, when you go to those at a weekend, there's a real buzz about it, and you know, you are young and you 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 feel like you're part of a tribe. When you have experienced these big boxing events, obviously, there's a lot of people listening that listen to your music and will have gone to your gigs. How big does it, because I'm convinced that the really big boxing events, they are the most exciting events on earth. I mean, so I've been doing it 30 years. But what's your takeaway from it? Is it as equal as anything else that you've experienced? Oh, yeah, like you said, it is the, the atmosphere and just the, the raw energy inside the arenas. And especially now that obviously you've got the... The, like the Neil Diamond moment and stuff like that now. Yeah, like yeah. It, it, it creates even more of an atmosphere when that, <laughs> you know, when that come on. It was just like, and yeah, like you say, it, it becomes so addictive. And since being able, obviously, to go to Tyson's fights and stuff, you know, I've, I've been like booking myself in to go see more fights, like just yeah. on, off, off my own back with my pals. We, you know, we watch all the fights, but going there is a completely different ball game, and that is why. You know, hopefully this this third fight happens and gets done, and he does him again, and then we get the AJ and Fury fight because that that is going to be something like a scene from Gladiator or something. I think Andy you'll be, battling, you'll be battling with Spoonie because AJ Spoonie, isn't he? So there could Stormzy. be a there could be a it DJ Stormzy. Sorry, yeah. Stormzy. Sorry. Uh, so you'll, you'll be having a we'll be having a battle of the DJs. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Stormzy will be out giving the shut up again, won't he? And I'll have to yeah. I'll have to actually come out with Tyson. And they have to do something live for once. But, you have to, um, yeah, you have to. 
Listen, talk to me. Talk to me about uh, the early morning workouts as well, because he's revolutionised the uh, social media. Uh, there's a few fighters out there doing a, a wonderful job. Joseph Parker being one of them, and we've mentioned a couple from the world of mixed martial arts. But Tyson's morning workouts with Paris and the rest of the family, all uh, accompanied by DJ Majestic's hot mix. Uh, <laughs> what, 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 what are you doing? Are you, are you like doing him an hour the, the night before and sending them over, and he whacks them out on the MP3? How's it? How's it all going down? I'm doing them an hour at six o'clock in the morning. I'm waking up. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, I'm going to, I need to do the mix. My missus is like, why didn't you get that done yesterday? I'm like, oh, I had loads on. So, yeah, I'm just trying to do as much fresh ones for him as possible. Even yet on Friday, because, you know, get Friday, get the Friday feeling. We did a proper old school one with some yeah. real uh, sort of throwback Ibiza tracks from sort of late 90s, early 2000s. Yeah, it was a good one, Friday. I enjoyed Friday. Yeah, and... I just love seeing his reactions to the tunes when they come on. And I've been throwing a few uh, sort of um, curveballs in there, including American Pie that I've done a matchup of. So, <laughs> and then like dropping in his voice, uh, some voice bites of him calling people dossers. And then he just yeah. laughs. It's quite funny. <laughs> Listen, Brilliant. it's all good fun. It's, it's good to see him in that place. And obviously you're part of that journey as well, mate. It's, uh, it's great to see everybody doing well on the Tyson uh, Fury train and long may that continue. Um, what's, um, what's next for you? Because I know you've got a new single out, haven't you? You've got a new tune yeah. coming out? New single come out last week, ironically, called Body Work, which is, uh, is. fitting in nicely to everything that's going on right now with everyone training at home. Beautiful. Let's get it up. Yeah, I'll tell you what we'll work. do. We'll, uh, we'll play out with this. Kev, all the best, mate. Stay well in lockdown, pal, and we'll see you soon, Take mate. Care. Take Cheers, mate. I'm sure I'll see you in Vegas. You will, yeah, mate. Cheers. Take care. Just in case you're wondering what this tune's called, DJ Majestic Bodywork. It's out now. Go and get it. It's an absolute banger. Support Kev, and then he can make more tunes with Tyson Fury and come up with more epic walkouts in the not-too-distant future. Thank you very much for listening to us. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast so therefore you never miss out on any of our content here on TalkSport. You can also get it on the TalkSport website. If you can join us next week at 8 o'clock, then you can be involved in the show. Failing that, we'll catch you next time on the podcast. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. 
seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.